Shalom. This is Mark Lichtenwalter, host of Fundamentally Mormon on Science Redemption Radio Network. Today we're going to go over Chapter 5 of Jesus Was Married, the Cana Marriage. We'll be reading pages 29 through 37. The reader program will read it first, and then I will read it with commentary second. The reader program takes about 20 minutes. So I hope you enjoyed this. This is one of my favorite books. And I'm glad to be able to share it with you on this format. Here we go. Chapter 5 of Jesus was married, pages 29 to 37 Circumstantial implications of the marriage in Cana of Galilee infer that Jesus was the bridegroom at this occasion. These implications become vividly clear when the story is carefully read. First, the story is recorded in John 2, 1-12, and the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus was called, and his disciples, to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there was set there six water pots of stone, after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, Draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they bet. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew. The governor of the feast called the bridegroom, and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee, and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. After this he went down to Capernaum, he, and his mother, and his brethren, and his disciples, and they continued there not many days. Observe, that Jewish marriages were arranged by the parents. From the account of this marriage at Cana, there is little doubt that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was the person responsible for making the wedding arrangements. Many writers comment upon this unusual situation without indicating or assuming any more than The incident had a personal interest for the mother of Jesus. Dr. Talmadge also mentions the relationship between this marriage event and Mary's responses. She manifested concern and personal responsibility in the matter of providing for the guests. 
Evidently her position was different from that of one prisoner by ordinary invitation. Whether this circumstance indicates her marriage to have been that of one of her own immediate family, or some more distant relative, we are not informed. Again, Talmud noted a similar circumstance which revealed this interesting affiliation with Jesus. What have I to do with thee? He asked and added, Mine hour is not yet come. Here we find no disclaimer of the ability to do what she apparently wanted him to do, but the plain implication that he, not she, must decide when that time had come. She understood his meaning, in part at least, and contented herself by instructing the servants to do whatsoever he directed. Here again is evidence of her position of responsibility and domestic authority at the social gathering. Another and more widely acclaimed writer on the life of Christ gave further suggestions about the circumstances of this marriage. But the presence of Mary, who must have left Nazareth on purpose to be present at the wedding, seems to show that one of the bridal pair was some member of the Holy Family. Jesus, too, was invited, and his disciples and the use of the singular implies that they were invited for his sake not he for theirs. Traditional Jewish records explain that a call is usually made to the bridegroom and his groomsmen when the wedding preparations are complete. Jewish traditions explain this call was made in the evening. We note, according to John, that Jesus was called to the wedding. In the Jewish marriage the guests were provided by the host with fitting robes, wine, and other amusements. At this marriage at Cana, when the wine had been consumed, Mary appealed to Jesus. Why did Mary assume a responsible concern for the wine if the wedding was not for a member of her own household? Why would she appeal to Jesus if it was someone else's wedding? If Mary was hostess and Jesus was the bridegroom, then they were fulfilling their proper obligations at this wedding. Note also that Mary gave direct instructions to the servants that, whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. It is evident that Mary was not assuming authority or unwisely directing the servants if she was hostess. And why would she give strict orders to the servants of the wedding to obey the jurisdiction of Jesus over them, if he were not the bridegroom? Jesus then acting as a provisionary host directed the servants to fill the water pots and then continued to meet his obligation by providing the needed wine. The governor, master of ceremonies, called to the bridegroom and said unto him, Thou hast kept the good wine until now. He was undoubtedly talking to Jesus as the bridegroom. And when the governor said to Jesus, Thou saved the best for last, he indicates that Jesus had also provided the first wine. Jesus then had fulfilled the obligations of the bridegroom on both of these occasions. Jesus regarded himself as the bridegroom. And John, the most beloved disciple of Jesus, had declared that he was the friend of the bridegroom. Great scholars and scriptorians, such as Urson Hyde who had memorized the Bible in three languages, Acknowledge that Jesus was the bridegroom at Cana. 
elected the Savior of the world consider it to be his duty to fulfill all righteousness? You answer, yes. Even the simple ordinance of baptism he would not pass by, for the Lord commanded it, and therefore it was righteousness to obey what the Lord had commanded, and he would fulfill all righteousness. Upon this hypothesis I will go back to the beginning, and notice the commandment that was given to our first parents in the Garden of Eden. The Lord said unto them, Multiply and replenish the earth. Our first parents, then, were commanded to multiply and replenish the earth. And if the Savior found it his duty to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness, a command of far less importance than that of multiplying his race, if indeed there is any difference in the commandments of Jehovah, for they are all important, and all essential, would he not find it his duty to join in with the rest of the faithful ones in replenishing the earth? Mr. Hyde, do you really wish to imply that the Immaculate Savior beget children? It is a blasphemous assertion against the purity of the Savior's life to say the least of it. The holy aspirations that ever ascended from him to his father would never allow him to have any such fleshly and carnal connections, never, no never. This is the general idea, but the Savior never thought it beneath him to obey the mandate of his father. He never thought this stooping beneath his dignity. He never despised what God had made, for they are bone of his bone, and flesh of his flesh kindred spirits, that once basked in rays of immortality and eternal life. When he found them clothed upon and surrounded with the weaknesses of mortal flesh, would he despise them? No. It is true, I have seen men who became poor and me struggle all at once, and then those who were their friends in the days of their prosperity turn from them, and scarcely deign to bestow them a look it being too humiliating to associate with them in their poverty. But it was not so with the Savior. He associated with them in other spheres, and when they came here, descending below all things, he did not despise to associate with these same kindred spirits. Then you really mean to hold to the doctrine that the Savior of the world was married? Do you mean to be understood so? And if so, do you mean to be understood that he had more than one wife? The Christian world by their prejudices have driven us away from the old Bible, so we must now appeal to the New Testament, for that seems to suit the prejudice of the people. But to me it is all alike, both the Old and New Testaments. For the scribe that is well instructed, brings out of his treasury things both new and old. This is my treasury, or rather, it is one of my treasuries, and what I cannot find there, I trust will come down from on high, and lodge in my heart. The gift of God is also my treasury, even the Holy Spirit. Now suppose I should set out myself, and travel through the cities of the nation as a celebrated reformer, preaching revelations and sentiments as lofty as the skies, and rolling out ideas strange and new to which the multitude were entirely unaccustomed. And wherever I went, suppose I had with me three or four women, one combing my head, another washing my feet, and another shedding tears upon them, and wiping them with the hair of her head. 
Suppose I should lean upon them, and they upon me, would it not appear monstrous in the eyes of the world? Would they ride me into Jerusalem upon our asses cold, and cast branches of the palm tree beneath my feet, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest? I guess they would give me a coat of tar and feathers, and ride me on a rail, and it is my opinion they would serve the Savior the same, did he go about now as he did 1800 years ago. When does it say the Savior was married? I believe I will read it for your accommodation, or you might not believe my words were I to say that there is indeed such a scripture. We will turn ever to the account of the marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Yes, and somebody else. You will find it in the second chapter of John's Gospel. Remember it and read it when you go home. John's second chapter was then quoted. Gentlemen, that is as plain as the translators, or different counsels over this scripture, dare allow it to go to the world. But the thing is there. It is told. Jesus was the bridegroom at the marriage of Cana of Galilee. And he told them what to do. Now there was actually a marriage. And if Jesus was not the bridegroom on that occasion, please tell who he was. If any man can show this, and prove that it was not the Savior of the world, then I will acknowledge I am in error. Then again, two years later, Apostle Hyde continued to advocate the marriage of Jesus in spite of any public disclaim by some modern Christians. It will be borne in mind that once on a time, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. And on a careful reading of that transaction, it will be discovered that no lesser person than Jesus Christ was married on that occasion. If he was never married, his intimacy with Mary and Martha and the other Mary also whom Jesus loved, must have been highly unbecoming and improper to say the best of it. I will venture to say that if Jesus Christ were now to pass through the most pious countries in Christendom with a train of women such as used to follow him, fondling about him, combing his hair, anointing him with precious ointment, washing his feet with tears, and wiping them with the hair of their heads and unmarried, or even married, he would be mobbed, tired, and feathered, and rode not on an ass, but on a rail, in certain councils of the church. Mormon leaders have often discussed and expressed definite views pertaining to this subject. On one occasion Joseph F. Smith expressed similar views about the Cana marriage. Joseph F. Smith He spoke upon the marriage in Cana of Galilee. He thought Jesus was the bridegroom and Mary and Martha the brides. He also referred to Luke 10th chapter. 34, 42 verses. Also John 11th chap. 2 and 5 verses, John 12, 13. Joseph Smith spoke upon these passages to show that Mary and Martha manifested much closer relationship than merely a believer. Certainly if anyone was married to Jesus it would have been Mary Magdalene. Her life can attest to a devotion as deep and as faithful as any loving wife or husband. Jesus was often found in the home of Mary giving her instruction and consolation, as a devoted husband would do. 
even in death Mary showed a bereavement and sorrow that only a wife would manifest. Why was she so bereaved at the tomb? Is not a widow usually the last to leave and the most often to return to a tomb? If Mary was not a wife, why was her grief so great that it required an angel to comfort her? How faithful and devoted Mary was to Jesus. She stood willingly at the cross to suffer at the death of Jesus. She was with the body of Jesus when it was taken down. She came to anoint the body with spices. In the early morning hours before anyone else, she was at the sepulcher. There at the tomb Mary wept bitter tears, because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. This grief could only be known to a widow whose concern was for the body of her husband. It was under such grief that she saw two angels. And later when Mary saw Jesus and recognized him, she cried, Rabboni, which means, my great master, or more often, husband. With exulting joy at seeing him alive, she rushed to embrace him but he said, Hold me not, for I am not yet ascended to my father. John 20:17 ends. Version, here from the inspired translation of the Bible, Joseph Smith changed the word, touch, to, hold. And why not? Would Mary, whose profound grief at the loss of Jesus, run to, touch, him? Indeed, her astonishment and joy at seeing Jesus would have caused her to rush and embrace him as she had done while he lived. But now he was immortalized and she was yet but immortal, and he had to restrain her while he went to the Father. Mary's love appears almost unbounded in her devotion and affection for him. But more outstanding than Mary's love for Jesus is the love that was manifest by Jesus towards Mary. It was the closeness and attention that Jesus paid to Mary before considering any others. It was to Mary before any other disciple, that Jesus first appeared after his resurrection. Mary was the first mortal to see the resurrected Christ. Although Peter was the chief apostle, and had been so devoted to the Lord, he was to take second place in this grand manifestation of the resurrected Savior. Mary was comforted and then given instructions to relate to the apostles and disciples. It seems as though she stood foremost among any other mortals. Why? Only the bonds of marriage could have placed Mary within a mutual devotion more intimate than those of the apostles. This touching experience is a grand manifestation of the love which could only exist within the bonds of a devoted man to his wife. For, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord but it was the gospel law. 38, chapter 6, An Everlasting Covenant of Marriage
The Cana Marriage, Chapter 5 of Jesus Was Married, pages 29 through 37. Circumstantial implications at the marriage in Cana of Galilee inferred that Jesus was the bridegroom of at this occasion. These implications become vividly clear when the story is carefully read. First, the story is recorded in John chapter 2 verses 1 through 12. And the third day, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus saith unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, Draw out now, and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the wine that was made, the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom. Page 30. And saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus of Cana, of Gal, or in Cana of Galilee, and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother and their brethren and his disciples, and they continued there not many days. Observe that Jewish marriages were arranged by the parents. From the account of this marriage of Cana, there is little doubt that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was the person responsible for making the wedding arrangements. So I think that means that the uh, the governor would have been the father of the bride. Many writers comment upon this unusual situation without indicating or assuming any more than the incident had been a pers- of personal interest for the mother of Jesus, that is, Abinagon Bible Commentary, page 1069. Dr. James E. Talmadge also mentioned the relationship between the marriage event and Mary's response. Now, Dr. 
James E. Talmadge was an apostle in the LDS Church. He wrote one of my favorite books called Jesus the Christ. I would recommend everybody read that book. Read it. You can listen to it. It's both on audio and, um, you know, you can buy it, read it. I think you can even read it at LDS.org. But it's such a good book. I've read it, I don't even know, over 20 times. And it's a thick book, but it is so, so good. James E. Talmadge was an apostle in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and he actually wrote that book in the Salt Lake Temple. Interesting facts. She maintained our manifested concern and personal responsibility in the matter of providing for the guests. Eventually, her position was different. Evidently, her position was different from that of one presented by ordinary invitation. Whether this circumstance indicates the marriage to have been that of one of her own intimate family, immediate family, or some more distant relative, we are not informed. End quote. Jesus the Christ by Talmadge, page 144. Again, Talmadge noted a similar circumstance which revealed this interesting affiliation with Jesus. What have I to do with thee? He asked and added, Mine hour is not yet come. Here we find no disclaimer of the ability to do what she apparently wanted him to do, but the plain implication that he, not she, must decide when that time had come. Page 31. She understood his meaning in part, at least, and contended herself by instructing the servants to do whatsoever he directed. Here again is evidence of her position of responsibility and domestic authority at the social gathering. Another and more widely acclaimed writer of the life of Christ gave further suggestion about the circumstances of this marriage. Quote, But the presence of Mary who must have left Nazareth on purpose to be present at the wedding, seems to show that that one of the bridal pair was the member of the Holy Family. Jesus, too, was invited, and his disciples, and the singular implies that they were invited for his sake, not he for theirs. And quote the life of Christ by Faar, page 123. Traditional Jewish records explain that a call is usually made to the bridegroom and his groomsmen when the wedding preparations are complete. Jewish traditions explain that this call was made in the evening. We note, according to John, that Jesus was called to the wedding 
in the Jewish marriage, the guests were provided by the host with fitting robes, wine, and other amusements. At this marriage at Cana, when the wine had been consumed, Mary appealed to Jesus. Why did Mary assume a responsibility, a a responsible concern for the wine if the wedding was not for a member of her own household? Why would she appeal to Jesus if it was someone else's wedding? If Mary was the hostess and Jesus was the bridegroom, then they were fulfilling their proper obligations at this wedding. Note also that Mary gave direct instructions to the servant that whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. It is evident that Mary was not assuming authority or unwisely directing the servants if she was the hostess. Page 32. And why would she give strict orders to the servants of the wedding to obey the jurisdiction of Jesus over them? if he were not the bridegroom. Jesus then acting as a provisionary host directed the servants to fill the water pots and then continued to meet his obligation by providing the needed wine. The governor or the master of ceremonies called to the bridegroom and saith unto him, thou hast kept the good wine until now. He was undoubtedly talking to Jesus as the bridegroom, and I think that the master of the ceremonies was probably the father of the bride. And when the governor said to Jesus, Thou save the best for last, he indicates that Jesus had also provided the first wine. Jesus then had fulfilled the obligations of a bridegroom on both of these occasions. Jesus regarded himself as the bridegroom in Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 and 15. And John, the most beloved beloved disciple of Jesus, had declared that he was a friend of the bridegroom. John chapter 3, verse 29 Great scholars and scriptorians such as Orson Hyde, who had memorized the Bible in three languages, acknowledged that Jesus was the bridegroom at Cana. Did the Savior of the world consider it to be his duty to fulfill all righteousness? You answer, yes, even the simple ordinance of baptism he would not pass by, for the Lord commanded it. And therefore, it was righteousness to obey what the Lord had commanded, and he would fulfill all righteousness. Upon this hypothesis, I will go back to the beginning and notice the commandment that was given to our first parents in the Garden of Eden. The Lord said unto them, Multiply and replenish the earth. Our first parents then were commanded to multiply and replenish the earth, and if the Savior found it his duty to be baptized, to fulfill all righteousness, a command of far less importance than that of multiplying his race, page 33. 
If indeed there is any difference in the commandments of Jehovah, for they are all important and essential, would he not find it his duty to join with the rest of the faithful ones in replenishing the earth? Mr. Orson Hyde, do you really wish to imply that the, the, the Immaculate Savior, Savior begat children? It is a blasphemous assertion against the purity of the Savior's life, to say the least of it. The holy aspirations that ever ascended from him to his father would never allow him to have any such fleshly or carnal connections. No, never. This is the general idea. But the Savior never thought it beneath him to obey the mandate of his father. He never thought this stooping beneath his dignity. He never despised what God had made, for they are bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh, our kindred spirits that once basked in the rays of immortality and eternal life. When he found them clothed upon and surrounded with the the weakness of mortal flesh, would he despise them? No, it is true I have seen men who have become poor and miserable all at once. And when those who were their friends in the days of their prosperity turned from them and scarcely deigned to bestow them a look, it being too humiliating to associate with them in their poverty. But it was not so for the Savior. He associated with them in other spheres. And when they came here, descending below all things, he did not despise to associate with these same kindred spirits. When you really mean, then you really mean to hold to the doctrine that the Savior of the world was married? Do you mean to be understood so? And if so, do you mean to be understood that he had more than one wife? The Christian world, by their prejudice, have driven us away from the old Bible, so we must now appeal to the New Testament, for that seems to suit the prejudice of the people, though to me it is all alike, both Old and New Testaments. For the scribe that is well instructed brings out of his treasury things both old or new and old. Page 34. This is my treasury, or rather, it is one of my treasuries. And what I cannot find there, I trust will come down from on high and lodge in my heart. The gift of God is also my treasury, even the Holy Spirit. Now suppose I should set out myself and travel through the cities of the nations as a celebrated reformer, preaching revelations and sediments as lofty as the skies and rolling out ideas strange and new, to which the multitude were entirely unaccustomed. And wherever I went, suppose I had with me three or four women when combing my head, another washing my feet, another shedding tears upon them and wiping them with their hair, the hair of her head. Suppose I should lean upon them and they upon me, 
would it not appear monstrous in the eyes of the world? Would they ride me into Jerusalem upon the ass's colt and cast branches of palm trees beneath my feet, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The guest, I guess they would give me a coat of tar and feathers and ride me out on a rail. It is my opinion they would serve the Savior the same. Did he go about now as he did 1,800 years ago? When does it say that the Savior was married? I believe I will read it for your accommodation, or you might not believe my words, were I to say that there is indeed such a scripture. We will turn ever to the account of marriage in Cana of Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there, yes, and somebody else too. You will find it in the second chapter of John's Gospel. Remember it and read it when you go home. John chapter 2 was then quoted. Gentlemen, that is as plain as the translators or the different councils over this scripture dare allow it to go to the world. But the thing is there. It is told Jesus was the bridegroom at the marriage of, the, of Cana of Galilee. And he told them what to do. Page 35. Now, there was actually a marriage, and if Jesus was not the bridegroom on that occasion, please tell me who was. If any man can show this and prove that it was not the Savior of the world, then I will acknowledge I am in error. Orson Hyde, Journal of Discourses, Volume 2, pages 79, 80, and 82. By the way, I know that the modern church doesn't really like the Journal of Discourses and they make up all kinds of things about the Journal of Discourses, but Brigham Young was the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Discourses, and in fact, the only reason it was written was as a publication to the saints in Europe. So this was like the enzyme, and it was taken from the talks of the general authorities of the church. Brigham Young was the editor-in-chief, and he checked the talks to make sure they were correct. So I know that there's a lot of things in the Journal of Discourses that the modern church doesn't want the, uh, the membership to know about, so they have to downplay it and lie against it. But... Brigham Young said it was as good as scripture, so I think I'll take his word for it. Then again, two years later, Apostle Hyde continued to advocate the marriage of Jesus in spite of any public disclaim by some modern Christians. It will be borne in mind that once on a time there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and on a careful reading of that transaction, it will be discovered that no less a person than Jesus Christ was married on that occasion. If he was never married, his intimacy with Mary and Martha and the other Mary, also whom Jesus loved, must have been highly becoming and improper to say the best of it.
I will venture to say that if Jesus Christ were now to pass through the most pious countries of the Christendom, with the train of women such as used to follow him, fondling about him, combing his hair, anointing him with precious ointment, washing his feet with tears and wiping them with the hair of their head, and unmarried and even married, he would be mobbed, tarred, and feathered, and rode not on an ass but on a rail. Orson Hyde, Journal of Discourses, Volume 4, page 257. In certain councils of the church, Mormon leaders have often discussed and expressed definite views pertaining to this subject. On one occasion, Joseph F. Smith expressed similar views about the Cana marriage. Page 36. Joseph F. Smith said, He spoke upon the marriage of Cana in Galilee. He thought Jesus was the bridegroom and that Mary and Martha the brides. He also referred to Luke chapter 10, 34 to 42 verses. Also John chapter 11, second and fifth verses. John chapter 12, verse 13. Joseph Smith spoke upon these passages to show that that Mary and Martha manifested a much closer relationship than merely a believer. That is recorded in Journal of Wilfred Woodruff, page, or, well, for the date, July 22nd, 1883. Certainly, if anyone was married to Jesus, it would have been Mary Magdalene. Her life can be attested to the devotion as deep and faithful as any loving wife to the husband. Jesus was often found in their home, the home of Mary, giving her instruction and consolation, as a devoted husband would do. Even in the the even in death, Mary showed a bereavement and sorrow that only a wife would manifest. Why was she so bereaved at the tomb? Is not a widow usually the last to leave and the the most often to return to a tomb? If Mary was not a wife, why was her grief so great that it required an angel to comfort her? How faithful and devoted Mary was to Jesus. She stood willingly at the cross to suffer at the death of Jesus. John chapter 19, verse 25. She was with the body of Jesus when it was taken down. Matthew 27, 61, Mark 15, 47, and Luke 23, 55. She came to anoint the body with spices. Mark chapter 16, verse 1. In the early morning hours, before anyone else, she was at the sepulcher. Matthew chapter 28, verse 1. Mark chapter 16, verse 2. Let me say something real quick about that. So when Constantine, the Roman emperor, hijacked early Christianity, they had to change a bunch of things. 
they had to make observing the Sabbath illegal. They actually said if you're idle on the Sabbath or if you rest on the true Hebrew Sabbath, you could be put to death. They would not allow Christians to mingle with the Jews. You could be put to death by marrying a Jew. Um, they changed the days. They made holy days obsolete and they made holidays, pagan holidays, the, the norm. Jesus Christ was born in the year 5 BC. Herod died in 3 BC, I believe. So Herod is the one that issued kill all the kids under two because they they didn't know how old Jesus was. So everybody under two gets killed, right? And then Herod died. Jesus had to be 30 years old before he could start his public ministry as a rabbi, which he was. He said that the evidence that he was who he claimed to be was that he would be in the earth for three days and three nights like Jonah was. Well, not even Einstein can get three days and three nights from Friday night to Sunday morning because that's not when it happened. Constantine wanted it to be a Friday crucifixion so that people would celebrate the god, the pagan god Dagon. And he wanted the resurrection to be on Sunday as part of a worship of Apollos, the sun god, who was worshipped on Sunday. But in the year 28 AD, at the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, there is a meal which we call Passover, which is called the Pesach. The day before that festival began, on Tuesday night, it was tradition a tradition of the rabbis to have a rehearsal meal. That's why the Last Supper does not have lamb added because it was just a rehearsal meal. Also, there's been more added to the Passover meal than, than there was at the time of Christ. But the Last Supper was a Passover meal. It was the night before the Feast of Unleavened, Bege- uh, Unleavened Bread began with the Feast of Passover, which was Wednesday night. It was that night, Tuesday night, according to our understanding of the week, that Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane. And he paid for the sins of the world. And it was that morning, that early morning, that Jesus was taken And by that afternoon, he was hung upon the cross. And by about 3 p.m., he was dead.
They had to hurry up and get Jesus off the cross because they did not want to defile the high and holy Sabbath of unleavened bread. But he was already dead. The great uncle of Jesus was Joseph of Arimathea, who was the uncle of Mary. Joseph of Arimathea got permission to take the body of Jesus and to put it in his tomb. And the tomb was sealed. And he was in the tomb Wednesday night to Thursday night. Thursday night to Friday night and Friday night to Saturday night. The first night for 24 hours was a high and holy Sabbath. Wednesday night to Thursday night. The markets were not open. But Friday morning, the markets were open all the way up until evening, which was the weekly Sabbath. And that's when Mary was able to go get the things that she needed to anoint the body of her husband. So she did that on Friday during the day, and then the weekly Sabbath from Friday night to Saturday night happened, where she could not go and do the work of a wife to her husband, to attend to her dead husband. In the evening after sunset, on the first day of the week, which we would know as Saturday evening after sunset, Mary went to the tomb. She got there after it was dark, but it was not the Sabbath anymore. But the angel said to her, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Jesus was resurrected on Saturday evening, which was the first day of the week. The Christians would meet together in the synagogues with the Jews, and then they would gather together on the evening of Saturday and they would they would come together and worship God and speak of Jesus that's why when Peter was speaking the guy fell asleep and fell out of the rafters and Peter had to go and bring him back to life and heal him because they would get together on the evening of Saturday night because that's when Jesus was married. He is not here. He is risen. So when it talks about the early morning hours, that's, that is, that is not, it's not correct. It was before the sun came up because the sun had just gone down. Jesus was in the tomb three days and three nights. Not three and a half days or three and a half nights, not one day and two nights, three days and three nights, which is significant. But when Constantine hijacked early Christianity, 
you have false traditions, which are lies. Continuing on with the reading. There at the tomb, Mary went, wept bitter tears because they have taken away my Lord and I know not where they have laid him. John chapter 20, verse 14. So remember in the scripture it says, Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, therefore thereby some have entertained angels unaware. I believe that the angel at the tomb appeared as a mortal being to Mary and that he gave her a message, but she couldn't believe it. It was so fantastic that she couldn't believe it. So she goes there after sunrise And she's weeping and she's trying to figure out who rolled away the stone. Where have they taken my husband? Where's my my love? This grief could only be known as a widow whose concern was for the body of her husband. It was under such grief that she saw two angels, Matthew chapter 28, verse 5. And later when Mary saw Jesus and recognized him, he cri- she cried, Rabboni, which means my great master, or more often, my husband. With exalting joy at seeing him alive, she rushed to embrace him, but he said, Hold me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father. John chapter 20, verse 17 of the Inspired Translation. Real quick, Jesus was on the cross, right? The thief on the cross said, Remember me when you come into your kingdom, Jesus. And Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, Today you will be with me in paradise. Now, some information I have received, God has taught me, is that the thief on the cross was raised as an orphan in the wilderness, and he was part of a band of thieves. And as Jesus was speaking or orating one of his lessons, his his speeches, if you will, the thief heard the words of Jesus and was pricked in his heart. But because of the consequences of his previous actions, even though he had been baptized and he had fully repented of his sins, he still had to pay for his crimes. But Jesus said today to his disciple who was the thief on the cross, Today you will be with me in paradise. Yet three days later, at the at the first uh, the day of first fruits, which was the first day after the weekly Sabbath, after the high and holy Sabbath, Jesus says, "Hold me not, for I have not yet gone to my Father. But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and to your Father." to my God and to your God. This shows that Jesus and the Father are two separate individuals. 
In Revelations chapter 1, it says that Jesus Christ hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. This shows a plurality of gods. Jesus' Father, well, Jesus always says, I am the son of Adam, and he was. Adam, as a translated being, impregnated Mary. And it's interesting because we know where the blood of Jesus is on the Ark of the Covenant, and we know where the Ark of the Covenant is. They've taken a sample of the blood that was on the right side of the mercy seat, which was Jesus' blood. They reconstituted that dry blood, and that blood was still alive. When they took a DNA sample of that blood, they saw that the chromosomes for the mother had 23 chromosomes. Now, usually, the chromosomes of the father would be 23 as well, but this, this blood was different. This blood was impossible because there was only one chromosome for the father. And that dried blood, which should have been long dead, it was still alive. I guess I'll continue on with the reading. Here from the inspired translation of the Bible, Joseph Smith changed the word touch, touch me not, to hold me not. And why not? Would Mary, whose profound grief at the loss of Jesus, run to him to touch him? Indeed, her astonishment and joy at seeing Jesus would have caused her to rush and embrace him as she had done while he lived. But now he was immortalized, and she was yet but immortal, and he had to restrain her while he went to the Father. Mary's love appears almost unbounded in her devotion and affection for him, but more outstanding than Mary's love for Jesus is the love that was manifested by Jesus towards Mary. It was the closeness and attention that Jesus paid to Mary before considering any others. It was to Mary before any other disciples that Jesus first appeared after his resurrection. Mary was the first mortal to see the resurrected Christ according to John chapter 20, verse 14 and 15. Although Peter was the chief apostle and had been so devoted to the Lord, he was to take second place in this grand manifestation of the resurrected Savior. Mary was comforted and given instructions to relate to the apostles and the disciples. It seems as though she stood foremost among any other mortals. Why? Only the bonds of marriage could have placed Mary within a mutual devotion more intimate than that of the apostles. This touching experience is a grand manifestation of the love which could only exist within the bonds of a marriage, a, a devoted man to his wife. For neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man of the Lord, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For this was the gospel law. When we come back on, we'll be reading Jesus was Married, chapter 6, starting on page 38. 
and we'll be talking about the everlasting covenant of marriage. I hope that you've enjoyed this reading. I hope that you've enjoyed my commentary. I hope that you will follow me and join my groups where I post these things or follow my pages where I post these things. Some of my pages are Zion's Redemption Radio Network, Zion's Redemption Bookstore. I also have a a page called Jesus Was Married. You can find my Facebook page by going to facebook.com forward slash Lazarus. 1977 and I'd like to just thank you for listening to this program take care everyone God bless and goodbye